Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. Are you ready to unlock the full potential and growth in your business? You've already crossed seven figures in sales, but the challenge is knowing how to take your business to the next level. Join Josh Hadley, an eight-figure e-com business owner and investor, as he interviews highly successful business owners. Get ready, because you're going to learn specific actions you can take today to help your business reach its full potential and leave a lasting impact on the world. Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hadley, where I interview the top business leaders in e-commerce. Previous guests include Stephen Pope, Kevin King, and Norm Farrar. Today, I'm speaking with James Thompson of Equity Value Advisors, and we will be talking a lot about preparing to exit and making your business attractive to a buyer. This episode is brought to you by Ecom Breakthrough Consulting, where I help seven-figure companies grow to eight figures and beyond. Listen, James, I started Hadley Designs back in 2015, and I grew it to an eight-figure brand in seven years. I made a lot of mistakes along the way that made the path of getting to eight figures take a lot longer than it actually needed to be. At times, I doubted whether our business could actually survive, uh, whether we could actually become a real brand or whether I could step into that real CEO role and lead others. I wish I would have had a guide to help me grow faster and avoid a lot of those stumbling blocks along the way. If our listeners have hit a similar plateau and want to know the next steps to take their business to the next level, then go to ecombreakthrough.com. That's ecom with two M's to learn more. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you all to James Thompson. James is the managing partner of Equity Value Advisors, advising brand executives and investors that are seeking guidance on how to accelerate e-commerce revenues and to align e-commerce and physical retail distribution and pricing strategies. Formerly, James was the chief strategy officer at Buybox Experts, a managed services agency supporting brand executive teams selling online, as well as private equity investors evaluating brands sold on Amazon. He has also served as the business head of Amazon Services, the division of Amazon responsible for recruiting tens of thousands of sellers annually to the Amazon marketplace. He also served as the first fulfillment by Amazon account manager. And prior to Amazon, James was a management consultant and retail banker. So with that introduction, James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me today, Josh. James, you have a wealth of knowledge that I think our listeners are going to be eager to hear what you have to share with us all. But most importantly, I love what you are currently doing right now is, as you sit on the board of multiple e-commerce companies, you're evaluating a lot of e-commerce companies in terms of acquisitions and you know investment opportunities. So James, tell us a little bit more about your role with Equity Value Advisors and what you're doing there right now. So when I left Buybox Experts, a, a traditional Amazon agency, uh, I, I decided that I wanted to continue to work with investors, private equity, VC companies, you know, some angel investors that were looking to buy Amazon businesses, or at least buy businesses that had strong Amazon channel uh, initiatives. If we think back to a couple of years ago, uh, when Amazon aggregation was a big, big deal and everybody was jumping in buying brands, you know, a lot of stuff started to happen there where people were looking at brands saying, should I buy this one? Should I buy that one? But you still had the traditional VC and private equity companies in the background who were buying brands and were looking at these types of companies. But a lot of those uh, traditional PE and VC companies stepped back when the multiples on brands got really, really high as aggregators were swooping in to put capital to use and buying up these these different uh, private label brands. Obviously, things have changed a little bit with the aggregators. Private equity and VC is back. They're certainly looking at brands, many of which, as I say, have this Amazon presence. Amazon is a different language compared to just about every other channel that brands might sell through. And so I've been able to apply the knowledge I have around how Amazon works, how it works in conjunction with other channels and help evaluate not only what's right and wrong about a business, but where's their opportunity for an investor to take that business to the next level. So many of your listeners may have seven figure brands. Some of them may have eight figure brands, uh, whether you're a seven figure, eight figure, or even nine figure brand today, if eventually you're looking to sell your business, Yes, you need to pretty up your business and make it ready for sale. But part of that exercise is going to be around how do you make it attractive to a buyer 
to absorb that business into its existing portfolio, how do you help them identify where there's opportunity for them to grow the business quickly and quickly recover the cost of acquiring your business? So that's the mentality that I apply to the work that I do today is helping investors think through where's their opportunity to pull certain levers that might not have been pulled enough up to this point uh, so as to be able to realize new forms of growth that traditional private label brand owners might not have been able to accomplish themselves. That's awesome. Well, James, I'm excited to dive into maybe some of those levers that you see, you know, when somebody acquires a business, what are the levers they're able to pull to accelerate growth? But let's even dive, let's go back even further. Um, I know we've had a prior conversation where uh, we talk about how there's a lot of people that can stumble into seven-figure brands, right? You can have a husband and wife team, or maybe it's just, uh, you know, one one guy and a couple VAs that are helping him, and they stumble into a seven-figure business. But it's very rare to stumble into an eight-figure business, right? Yes, Typically, yes. you're you're actually building a brand and business at that point. So, James, tell me about kind of your thought process of somebody that stumbles into a seven-figure brand and wants to grow it to eight figures and beyond. What are the steps that they should be taking and how do they start scaling things up with maybe an exit down the road? We'll talk about exit separately, yeah, but yep. let's talk about the levers they can pull now to go to seven, eight and nine figures beyond. Many years ago when I was at Amazon, we were encouraged by our SVP for all of us to go and set up our own third party seller accounts. And many of us did, in fact, do that. I, I, I had a third party seller account with my wife and some other folks and we were reselling different brands. And as fast as I could call companies and say, will you let me wholesale your products and then sell them on Amazon, as fast as I could do that, I could turn around and make some decent money. And I I grew my business to do several hundred thousand dollars a year. It was very much a part-time initiative. But if I'd gone full-time, there were definitely enough other brands that I could have called that I could have got to a million dollars a year. But at a million dollars a year, you know, I could still operate that business uh, on my kitchen table unloading product, repackaging it, sending it into FBA. It was all still very doable. It was a lot of manual work, uh, a lot of Excel spreadsheets, uh, but not, not necessarily that sophisticated, uh, but it, it was still very doable. And, and certainly today, there are many folks that will start their own private label brands rather than being resellers. They'll be private label brands of their own brands. And again, opportunity to be able to grow your business fairly quickly using a lot of these not very sophisticated techniques of your kitchen table and a few Excel spreadsheets to get to the point that you're running a decent sized business. Many of the companies I've worked with when I was both at Amazon and then uh, since Amazon as a consultant at either my, my own firm or at Buy Box Experts, you know, in those situations, these brands are having to think through very sophisticated steps around do they have the right catalog selection today? Are they evolving their catalog in order to be able to adjust to competitive forces and and capture different types of product gaps that might avail avail them to additional products down the road? What are they doing in order to find production efficiencies so that the products they're sourcing today, can they source those products for 5%, for 10% less in a couple of years from now as they grow the volumes and are able to have larger minimum order quantities? Uh, There are a lot of questions here around do you diversify into other channels where today Amazon represents 70 plus percent of the consumer opportunity for online sales today in the United States? Is it worth doing all these other channels? And one of the things I'd like to talk to to my clients about is it's not so much if you add, for example, walmart.com or target.com, are any of those channels uh, going to be worth the squeeze, as they say? Are Mm -hmm. they going to be large enough that it's worth the effort? I like to think about it not just in terms of you need to be where your customers are, but also even if you only add 5% more with this channel and 5% more with that channel, every time you add another channel, if you're able to grow 25, 30% more through some of these other channels, in many situations, you're doing enough extra volume through those other channels that you can go back to your suppliers and negotiate lower production costs on your products. That's lower production costs for all of your units, including the ones yeah. being sold on Amazon. And so the benefit of diversifying into other channels isn't just about having your product in lots of places, but actually being able to negotiate down prices, uh, your production prices, which benefits your whole overall business. So 
I know it's frustrating to put a lot of effort into other channels and not see a ton of sales or not see anywhere near the amount of sales given the amount of effort you're putting into it relative to what you're doing on Amazon. Uh, but as I think through the conversations I have with many different buyers who are my clients today, who are looking at brands, looking at can they take on these brands and do new things with them. But when brands have already started the process of testing new channels and understanding what it takes to be successful in other channels, you know, those are all very good signs for a buyer that the product, in fact, has legs and can move beyond just Amazon. Um, I'm going to say something a little controversial here, but for, for a lot of the companies that, that I have helped buyers acquire, there's always this question of, oh, is there a brand here? And for brands that have historically been on Amazon only, I would question whether these are really brands. Amazon is, as a marketplace is a transactional marketplace. People go and they buy a unit of something. And then when they come back the next time, they may not necessarily have any brand awareness of the products they bought in the past. On the most part, they're doing unbranded search to find products. And so the opportunity for them to say, I remember that weird brand I bought last time. I think I need another one of those. That's in fact not the way that most consumers on Amazon behave. And so when we talk about, oh, I have a brand and I'm building a brand and it's an important brand and there's brand awareness, I, I would challenge whether that's really the case. On the other hand, if you're taking a brand and you're actually selling it into multiple channels and you're starting to essentially own uh, the, 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 the visibility of that brand wherever consumers might be, I would argue that you're moving closer towards actually having some brand equity that you can leverage that in time may help you diversify into a meaningful uh, DTC site, having a Shopify or a big commerce site of your own where you can sell your products. But when all you're doing is selling on Amazon and it's transaction after transaction, it's not clear to me that there's necessarily a brand. And it's not clear to buyers who are acquiring your brand that there's really a brand. And keep in mind that some of the sophisticated P and VC companies that are acquiring brands today, they don't want to just buy a brand that's going to be sold on Amazon. They want brands that they can sell into other online channels, but eventually they also want to be able to sell those brands potentially into physical brick and mortar. When you go into physical brick and mortar, the, the, the retailers are, are going to want to see what kind of sales history you have, what kind of product reviews you have, but also how visible is your product in different types of channels. And if you can show different types of success selling over here and over here and over here, there's a lot more opportunity for you to show that you're sophisticated in the ways of distribution. I would argue that being a good distributor of your product is more important than being really good at building out the brand equity of your brand. In time, brand equity will come. People will have more experience with your product. Consumers in more channels will see your brand. But until we move away from this transactional nature of e-commerce, it's really hard to have a meaningful brand that consumers remember and keep in mind when they come back to search for a product like yours the next time they go shopping. You know, there's a lot to untangle there. I've, I've talked about a variety of different things, but it's important to recognize most of us today sell widgets. And yes, there's a UPC and a brand name and a, and a logo on the box, but consumers who are shopping online most of the time, they're doing unbranded search. They're not yep. necessarily thinking about, oh, you're XYZ brand. I remember that brand. I'm going to look specifically for that brand the next time I go shopping. Now, what, one of the things that I help brands with, or excuse me, acquiring companies today think through, and certainly something for your brands to think about, what, one of the low-touch ways to build brand equity, or, or let me put this differently, one of the low-touch ways to create some sort of a meaningful experience that the consumer has with your brand so that they will actually have a higher likelihood of remembering your brand is to think through the open box experience of your brand. The, the number of products that I buy today on Amazon where I receive something, and yes, there's branding on the outside of the box, but there's all this lost opportunity for the brand to engage with me to help me understand how the brand fits into my life, how it's going to solve problems for me. There's a widget in the box there's all this lost opportunity around cross-merchandising. What other types of products do you offer? How does your product get used in not necessarily one way, but three or four different ways? Think of a typical six-sided box. But when you open a box, open the box, there might be the top label. Uh, typically, the inside of the box is blank. There's nothing printed on the inside of the box. Yeah. Um, on the outside of the box, 
You know, there may be a URL to your website. There may be a link to your YouTube channel. But there's not a lot of opportunity, or excuse me, there's not a lot of effective engagement with consumers to tell them your story. What is the story of your brand and how does it fit into consumers' lives? How do you help consumers think through this piece of equipment I can use to solve this problem or this problem or this problem? And by the way, we have other cousins. There are other types of products that we also make that would also help you fit uh, fit into your life solving this type of problem or this type of problem. Use the open box experience as a way to help consumers understand that you really are a uh, portfolio of products that help consumers simplify their lives in whatever way it is. By the way, everything I'm saying you can do well within the Amazon terms of service. I'm not suggesting that you're directing people in weird ways to places you can't direct them. But you need to use all of that as merchandising opportunity to tell your story. Yeah. Consumers understand more about what you do. I remember buying a suitcase once on Amazon. It was a it was a private label brand suitcase. And when I received the box, I realized the box was meant for me to engage with. I could open the box. There was all sorts of stuff printed on the inside that was actually quite interesting and relevant for me to understand how to clean my suitcase, how to store my suitcase, uh, how I could pack it or not pack it effectively. All of these are things where I can learn more about how this product actually is going to make my life simpler. And then when you have a YouTube channel for, for all sellers that are spending all this time building videos to help consumers understand the product, you got to tell people, hey, we have a YouTube channel to help you install this product, set up this product, clean this product, store this product, Watch our videos to learn more about how to get the most value out of the product versus we have a YouTube channel. Okay, that's great. But again, you're losing out on that opportunity to tell your story more in depth and to help consumers get more value out of the product, which is going to reduce return rates, which should hopefully create some level of awareness in your brand. And potentially consumers are more likely to share uh, information about your brand with their friends and family and say, you know, I had a good experience with that brand. Next time you need to buy a suitcase, check out this brand. You should check it out. It was, it was actually kind of interesting and so different from what everybody else is doing today, which is I got to go source a product. I go slap my label on it, put it in a box, get it to Amazon and sell as many units of it as I can. That is not a brand. A brand is figuring out how to educate consumers post-sale on some of the additional benefits and features of the product that will make their lives better. That, to me, is much closer to, to being a real brand than anything else that, that we see today on Amazon. Yeah, I love that. James, so much to unpack with all of that. But uh, you, you dropped some huge knowledge bombs that get me really excited. And I've already got my wheel spinning of different things that we can be doing with our brand. But, James, what have you seen as you've looked at numerous e-commerce brands at this point? Yep. What have you seen as, uh, you know, some good examples of a of a great unboxing experience right or uh, just to give i think the luggage example is a good example but let's say yep. somebody doesn't have their product coming in a box today um you know maybe uh, do you have other examples of of what you've seen so, working so, so i had a client a few years back that sold beauty products and the products didn't come in a box but the decision was made that it was actually worth the cost of putting the item in a box, specifically because the box, if you design it properly, becomes a beautiful piece of merchandising that allows you to tell a much broader story about how this product or this product as part of a larger uh, grouping of products that, that the brand makes, how that product can make your life better. And, and so by putting the product in a box, using the inside of the box to tell more story, uh, being able to put more text on the inside to help consumers get more of their questions answered post-sale to show them more of the products that, that might also be interesting for the next level of consumption or the next level of problem that consumers are facing. All of that uh, was, you know, yes, there is obviously manufacturing costs to putting these uh, items that weren't otherwise in a box now in a box. But, but by doing that, you have the opportunity to market your story, to market your brand, to build your brand, to be in a position where consumers start to think about your brand as more than just a bottle of goop which unfortunately, you know, there's an awful lot of bottles of goop that are being sold on Amazon under various brand names. So I'm picking on beauty products, for example, but, but this, is, this is one relevant category where a lot of stuff doesn't come in a box. Yep. Now, many years back when I, was, when I was dealing with FBA sellers or early days in FBA, you know, sellers would take whatever their non-boxed item is, 
put in a poly bag, jam a bunch of marketing materials in that bag as well, and then they would send that into FBA. And then the consumer gets something, and it looks like you know a leftover Halloween trick-or-treat bag, <laughs> which really is not a very good uh, experience from a branding perspective. But you need to think through, in what situations is it actually worth adding a little bit extra production cost in order to help your product prepare itself uh, to engage with consumers a little bit better. I like products that are in boxes for a couple of reasons. Number one, you're getting closer to being ready for physical retail. Number two, if you use the packaging effectively for merchandising, as we talked about earlier, that there's opportunity to tell a lot of other stories to simplify the interaction that the customer first has with the brand and be in a position where the customer is more likely to get, I hate to use the word, but some sort of customer delight out of the experience where they, they get more value than they anticipated out of the interaction. Here's the crazy thing. For private label brands that are doing a good job creating content, often the content that they need, they've already created. They're just not using it again in terms of having a YouTube channel and telling people, go watch my installation videos, go watch my how to clean this product video. Um, I've already created imagery showing, you know, I sell these five different bottles of goop, Here's how they interact, and here's why you would use this one at this point and this one at this point. Probably put that at the bottom of your product description. Well, use that content again. Put it on your box. Tell the story again and again and again. I'm not asking you to go and create a whole bunch of new content. You probably already have it, and if you don't, you should have it anyways to, to get good online experiences for customers on Amazon. I'm working with a, with, with a client right now that uh, they're a first-party brand. Now, I recognize many of your, many of your listeners may not be first-party brands, but, but in Vendor Central, there's opportunity to load more than one video. And when you can load more than one video, yeah, you can have the one video that shows your product. Here's how it interacts with your life. That's great. But you can also have a video that says, here's how you install the product. Here's how you clean the product. Here's how you store the product. Here's how you know when the product's ready to be replaced. All that kind of additional content, why not provide it to customers right up front uh, when, when they're making that purchase decision? Because you're showing them that you as a brand are thinking about the long-term interaction the customer is going to have with the brand versus I just want to sell you a bunch of widgets. So th th this is all part of, if you think about what a brand actually is, a brand is a set of promises that you make to a customer that the customer comes to learn that they can expect that you will regularly deliver on. And so the more promises that you make and the better job you do at delivering on those promises, the more brand equity you build. Well, when you sell a widget in a box with no real information about what to do with the widget, even if it's seemingly apparent to customers, oh, this type of product, I know what I'm supposed to do with it. Yeah, but even if it's obvious, tell the story again. Help customers make sure that they get the most value out of that product so that they say, I remember that product did a really good job of helping me feel comfortable, confident, interacting with this product and knowing exactly what to do to get the most value. Yeah. I, I love that. And I can't echo that enough. I think that for a lot of brands, it, it even goes to like your product copy and your product images that you put together. Is it telling a meaningful story and what's in it for me, right? For the end customer, you know, they don't necessarily care that this particular product is laminated with PET film to them. It's like, I don't even know what PET film is. Right. But what they do know is that hey, I want this to be durable so that my kids can interact with this product without ripping it or damaging it, right? And so it's displaying, uh, you know, how is this product going to serve this yep. customer, right? And then your overall brand story should be, you know, communicating to how you're serving that customer. And I love your strategies and, and your thoughts with how do you showcase additional products to help serve the customers in other areas of their life. I think that is so, so important. On that note, James, I mean, we talked a lot about different strategies that people can be implementing to move from seven figures to eight figures and beyond. Um, you talked about production efficiencies. We talked about uh, creating new products. We talked about getting more distribution into new channels. Of all of those things, each of those are, are fairly large to tackle on their own. Um, you know, if somebody just crossed that seven figure mark, what would be like your actionable advice for them to say, hey, this is what I would do first, second, third. So the first thing I would do, we actually haven't talked about yet. The first thing I would do is I would start to delegate 
tasks to people and clear up your plate so you can spend more of your time thinking about how to go and source better products, how to do more research to find those product gaps in your catalog that you can start to fill, uh, how to start thinking about new channels that you might expand into. When I think of the day-to-day activities of what it takes to run an Amazon business, there's an awful lot of stuff that, quite frankly, we don't really like doing. You got to check reports. You got to check Seller Central. You got to check your inventory. You probably got to talk to your uh, 3PL if you've got one that's bringing products in from overseas. There's a lot of activities that need to be looked at. And I, I didn't even talk about, oh, you got to file 20 seller support tickets today. All that kind <laughs> of stuff. You need to be saying to yourself, even though I think I can do this better than anybody else in the world, the reality is there's only so many hours in the day. You need to go hire a VA or outsource this to a trusted colleague who, you know, it may, of course, you know, it's going to cost you money, but the money that you spend to have somebody do a lot of these repetitive tasks or tasks that you don't really like doing, that frees you up to do much higher value uh, added stuff to, to drive your overall business. If you've got more time to be doing new product research and thinking through, okay, Where's there opportunity for me to potentially expand my product line? Uh, where do I need to start thinking about culling out some of the products in my products? Because, quite frankly, not all this stuff has turned out to be gold. You've got to have time to think through those bigger questions. And the only way to do that is to start outsourcing some of the, the mundane that comes with running an Amazon business. As you get better at outsourcing that and accepting the fact that, yeah, you know, this other person who's taken on these tasks may not be quite as amazing at doing it as I am, But quite frankly, I don't need amazing. I need competent. And the more you can get competent help to help you with many of these tasks, the more time you free up to work on other types of activities. When my partner, business partner and I, we were running our Amazon agency, we did everything. We put on every hat imaginable to run that business. And as we started to outsource certain tasks and get more comfortable with, listen, we can outsource most of this stuff with high confidence to people as long as we train them properly and we're patient and we get them up and running. All of a sudden, we now had a multiplier effect. We have a multiplier effect. uh, That's when the genius of being a business owner starts to really kick in. And yeah, you know, wouldn't you love to have five other people who are as strong and intelligent and good looking as you are to, to be there with you? I don't need that. I need three or four highly competent people in each of their specific areas to help me pursue different responsibilities so that I can go and tackle some of these bigger long term questions. That's the stuff that really starts to matter. And that's the stuff where I get excited because I realize I can spend time helping think through how to grow my business versus being in the weeds day to day, making sure that every seller support ticket gets addressed and every customer inquiry gets responded to quickly. That's not where I should be spending my time as a business owner. Yeah, it's good to touch basis and check in every so often on those things. But if you're doing that all day, all night, uh, trying to make, make, make ends meet with your business, I would rather have a little bit less margin but have more time to think about the bigger issues, like what products do I need? What channels do I need? Do I need to go and get some outside funding to help uh, accelerate the growth? Those are the big complicated questions that you as a business owner need to be thinking about if you have any intention on going from being a seven-figure to an eight-figure seller. Yeah. James, I I, I echo everything that you talked about there. I think that so many people initially get so worried about like, oh, this person's going to cost X amount of money. Or yeah. they can't do it as well as I can. And frankly, it, it, it's just a natural path of any leader that you need to just you need to overcome and you need to get through and you need to learn how to delegate. If the, if you truly want to grow your brand, delegating and leading people is just something that you're going to need to tackle because you're not going to turn your brand into an eight and nine figure brand just yep. by yourself alone and a couple virtual assistants like you are going to need to build out leadership teams and people that can can make other difficult decisions for you in the business as well. I mean, many of us have young children, and the reality is you need to work with your children to show them how to do stuff because eventually they will grow up and be competent at certain things. It's exactly the same thing when you hire somebody and say, I need you to learn how to do this task. And the reality is, unless you get comfortable delegating certain things and saying, okay, kids, you're doing the dishes tonight. I know the dishes may not be quite as clean as I would like them to be, but we'll get better at this. and We'll get to the point where I can rely on you to do this properly. Fantastic. Now I can go focus on something else. 
these are these are harsh realities of becoming the operator of a big business. You know, I think back to the, the absurd situation with a guy like Steve Jobs when he started Apple many, many years ago. Do you think that at some point he thought he would be packaging up all the iPhones and boxes by himself? Of course not. He had to start delegating things. He had to start building teams that were competent teams that were given the responsibility of doing certain things. I'm not suggesting that every seven-figure seller is in the process of building the next you know, trillion-dollar Apple business, but you need to think about how do I delegate so I can spend more of my time thinking about the big questions of do I need to add completely new product lines? Do I need to get completely new manufacturers or at least find a secondary manufacturing source? What do I do to go through and do very careful cost analysis and figure out how I can remove 3 4% of cost out of my manufacturing so that I potentially can absorb inflationary costs or be in a position where I've got more money to invest in growing my business that much faster? Those are big long-term questions that you must make time to do. And the only effective way I see companies being able to do this is you've got to hire people and delegate responsibilities. Yep, I agree. Now, James, let's transition before I, I don't want to run out of time on this because I feel like this is going to be a very important uh, piece of advice that you'll share with the audience here. But how should brands be making their brand or their business <clears throat> attractive to investors? You talked about, you know, uh, investors want to be able to come in and know what levers they can pull to accelerate growth. Yep. Um, and I've also kind of heard, hey, you don't want to get into retail yet because you want that potential acquirer to say, oh, wow, look at this opportunity with retail. Um, or you don't want to go to all of the channels because you want other investors to be able to say, oh, you haven't got onto Walmart? Like, that's easy. I can do that. And Etsy yep, yep. and Target. So dismiss, you know, let's maybe dismantle some of those myths, but also talk about, like, what are investors truly looking for? What are the levers and what makes it an attractive business? I know that's a, a loaded question, but well, give us there, there's a lot of stuff that you can do here. And, and again, assuming you've delegated tasks and you have time to think through what I'm about to say, it's really important, in my view, for every brand owner to have a three-year business plan. And that three-year business plan says, what, where can I be in three years from now? What's it going to take for me to get there? Now, I didn't say you actually have what it takes to get there, but what would it take to get there? And I'm not talking about we're going to the moon. I'm talking about, okay, I have a $2 million a year business. If I want to grow it to be a $10 million business, okay, well, let's, let's work backwards. We know what my conversion rates are. We know what my inventory levels are. We know what, you know, we can estimate what kind of potential market demand there is for products like mine. Okay, so if, if I've got 10 products in my category, uh, do I need to have 50 products? If it's 50 products, is it all still in the same category or is it other types of products? Start to think through and you, and you can just, you can either go down, up or top, top, bottom, you know, either way, just figure out what would need to be the case in order for me to be three, four, five times bigger. And some of it's going to be simple math, but also some of it's going to be if I needed to open up new channels, which channels probably make the most sense given what I can see on a superficial uh, overview, just looking at some of those other channels. Okay, if I want to sell into physical brick and mortar, maybe I should have a conversation with an agent that could help me sell into those channels. Not that you're actually going to sell into those channels, but to figure out what would it take for your products to be ready to have a conversation with a retail buyer to figure out if, in fact, your products would be, uh, uh, be welcome in those channels. Those are conversations you can have, and it doesn't take that much work to do that. And what you may quickly realize is with the products I already am making, with the packaging I'm already using, there are some changes that I could start to make to some of those products that actually make my products more interesting and more ready for retail or more ready for other types of online channels. And so just working through that exercise of saying, what are the minimum criteria I need to be in these different types of channels or to expand into some of these other types of, of categories where there might be different regulatory issues or different manufacturing issues, start to work through those things, even though you may not actually uh, you know, activate and move forward on any of them. But you can at least start to ask the questions, talk to fellow colleagues who may have already explored those channels, talk to experts who know those particular categories or those other types of channels, and ask the questions and start to figure out what would it take for you to be three to five times bigger in the next three years. 
As you start to think that through, you may realize that a lot of those issues that hold you back are going to be are going to going to be you know financial uh, financial access to, to more working capital. Well, again, you may not have the working capital, and it may require an investor to come in to provide that working capital, either acquiring your business or or providing you with some investment capital. But as you go through and you start to figure out, if I want to build a really big cake, what ingredients do I need? Okay, I'm going to need this much of this and this much of this. Now I know what it's going to take for me to get to, you know, having a really big cake. Turns out some of the things that you may need, you may find ways to get in the meantime, long before you actually sell your business. You may decide, I got to go to my rich uncle and say, can I borrow half a million dollars and give you 20% of my company? Because with that half million dollars, I can do all these exciting things with new product testing, uh, you know, getting larger minimum order quantities and hence lower costs. I can expand into some new categories. All that stuff is well worth exploring as part of developing this three-year plan. The, the other thing I do want to say as an aside, because I'm fully guilty of having made this mistake myself, private label brand owners often like to build up their brand with the idea that at some point they will sell it to somebody and they will get 100% of the money for selling this business. Look, I built a $10 million brand and somebody paid me a crazy amount of money. I would much rather be the owner of part of a much bigger pie than the full owner of a, a pie that I built by myself, but quite frankly, never got to be as big as it could have been. And so the idea of taking capital from somebody else, selling off a piece of your business to get more working capital, that shouldn't be looked at as an evil. In fact, with the right kind of partner, with the right kind of terms, it's something that you should definitely be looking at seriously and saying, could I accelerate my business considerably if I had half a million dollars more working capital, a million dollars more working capital. Uh, and you don't have to take it on as debt. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you could also take it on as equity. And th those are conversations that are well worth having. And those are long-term conversations that, again, you can only have if you've got time to start thinking about the strategic nature of where your business could be in three years and what key ingredients you're going to need to get yourself there. Yeah. What are the specific levers that you see investors getting excited about being able to pull? Right now, uh, right now, <laughs> right, right now, uh, brands that are looking to sell their business at some point in the next 12 to 18 months, you got to have your house in order and having your house in order is not just, oh, I've got SOPs and my counting's in good shape and blah, 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 blah. It's also, do I have a three-year plan that I've laid out that says logically my catalog could go in this direction? Uh, I could add these types of channels. Got to start thinking through what it's going to take, which levers you think are most meaningful to your business, given where they are today, given the manufacturing relationships you have and so on. Start laying out what those things are so that you can hand the next buyer what you believe a meaningful starting point for a three-year building plan would be to take your brand to the next level. It doesn't mean that the buyer is actually going to take all those ideas, but it's a starting point. And if you've looked at this seriously and actually started to apply some uh, details around what it's going to take to make each of these different activities happen, what you're doing is you're helping the buyer to be able to say, okay, once I acquire your business, I may have to kick more working capital into the business, but I can see that, yes, it makes sense for me to diversify into these products, or yes, it makes sense for me to add these additional channels, and I can see that I'm going to need to do these specific things to make that happen. Keep in mind, most companies that will buy your company, your brand, they're not as sophisticated at running your brand as you are. So you need to give them a little bit of a map around what it's going to take for them not only to run your business as it is today, but also where it makes sense for them to take the brand going forward. There may be a strategic acquirer who comes in and says, listen, we've already got all those other channels in place. We, we can instantly launch your product in those other channels. We've, we've got better sourcing than you do and all that kind of stuff. Okay, that's great. But again, giving them a roadmap that says we've thought through if certain things were possible around working capital or around time that I had, I could do these things with my brand. That's going to be stuff that's going to be well appreciated by buyers because you're helping them understand where your brand fits in with everything else that's already out there from everybody else. And so it's no longer just, yeah, I have a widget and I sell a bunch of widgets on Amazon, but I've done some market sizing. I can see where my product fits in. You know, my product fits in this tranche within this category. I could launch a different tranche or I could expand into a different category with the types of products I have. Think through those different things 
lay it out, make it explicit, identify what it would take to actually accomplish those tasks. Those things are going to make buyers much more interested in your products because you're helping them with this roadmap. And that's, that's going to be absolutely critical. If, you're, if your company is bought by a private equity company, private equity company, many of them want to hold your brand for three years. They want to supercharge growth, and then they want to turn around and sell your brand again. When I go to private equity companies, I say to them, listen, let me help you build that three-year plan before you actually acquire this company. Mm. Because if I can help you shorten the time frame you have to own that brand, if I can help you shorten it by six months or 12 months, because we hit the ground running and we actually do certain things immediately to grow the brand further, the private equity company is going to be in a position that they can realize the kind of return they want in a shortened time period. They're happy. They're very happy by doing that. And, and it allows them to, to be able to move quickly once they take ownership of the brand. If you're the brand owner today and you can identify here are things that can be done quickly to find new sales revenue opportunities, again, that's going to be something your buyer is, is going to be appreciative of seeing, even if they never take any of your suggestions. If, if it's detailed enough around what you do or don't know about your product in these new channels or new products in existing channels, all, all that stuff's going to be helpful to, to a prospective buyer. Awesome. I love that, James. Uh, my, my one final question that I want to ask you there is that as you, um, you know, provide or, you know, consult these private equity brands yep. or companies with three to five year, you know, plans that they could implement, what are some of the, like the levers that you would like, are there levers you could list off such as, Hey, you know, we ramp up D to C, uh, we start doing more external advertising or working with influencers or is it, you know, retail? Is there kind of like an, a list, maybe a checklist we could go down for brand owners just to start mulling over in their mind as they start to consider building out a three to five year plan for their business of like, here's a list of a bunch of different levers that I've seen yep. other brands be able to pull. And when private equity has acquired them, they did pull these levers. We saw great success. Then they were able to turn around and do what they wanted to those brands. Any yeah, so, 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 I mean, we, there, there's a lot of stuff we can go through, but stuff that brands often overlook as they prepare themselves for sale, uh, you should absolutely know what kind of repeat purchase behavior or subscribe and save behavior you have uh, from your customer base. And if it's low and your product is, for example, a consumable, gosh, uh, we don't expect consumables to have low repeat purchase behavior. What are you doing in order to help consumers re-engage with you? Do you have to start using some of these Amazon email tools or do you have to invest in Amazon DSP, which can be an expensive endeavor initially, but one that helps you to go back to existing customers and get them to come back and buy your products. You want you want to see brands that have decent repeat purchase behavior. If they're non-consumable products, then you want to start asking the question, what are you doing to merchandise the other types of products in your catalog to get consumers thinking about, Oh, when I have this type of problem, I should be thinking about your brand to help me with this and this and this. Th th these are all questions that I think are useful to go through. Whether you're going to sell your brand or not, you've got to be asking, am I, in fact, lowering my total cost of acquisition and cost of reacquisition, repurchase, second purchase, third purchase? So, so looking at subscribe and save, looking at repeat purchase behavior and tracking that over time and asking yourself the question, what could I be doing? What should I be doing? to drive uh, a lower cost of acquisition and, and, and getting customers to come back over and over again. Those problems uh, cannot be solved overnight, but you need to be thinking explicitly about what it's going to take for you to get consumers to start to re-engage with your brand. And, and that's, that, that's a very useful exercise and one that if you do eventually sell your brand, being able to showcase that as part of the broker deck that you put in front of prospective buyers uh, that's something that buyers respond very positively to because they see that you're actually building some level of customer brand awareness and re-engagement. That's, that's, that's going to differentiate you from every other so-called brand on Amazon that's basically nothing more than a logo and, and some UPC codes. So I like repeat purchase. I'm looking at that. I also like being in a situation where as you prepare uh, eventually to sell, most brands are going to have to write down all their standard operating procedures. Turns out most brands don't actually use the standard operating procedures they think they're using. And so just the exercise of documenting this and putting things down on paper and realizing, wait a minute, why do I do it that way? Wait a minute, couldn't I outsource this to another VA or to another person that I have supporting my team? 
I, I'm not actually thinking about this effectively. So as you start to document what you're doing, you'll realize this is absurd. Why am I doing this? Well, by the way, what am I missing out on that I should be also monitoring? Oh, okay, that needs to be part of my standard operating procedure, not just on paper, but actually as part of my day-to-day exercise. What, one of the tasks that we took on with some of our clients a few years back that um, as simple as it may sound, but as powerful as it turned out to be is lay out what needs to be done on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a quarterly basis, on a yearly basis, and then what needs to be done based on certain trigger trigger points along the way. Write that stuff all down. Know exactly what needs to be done. A lot of it can be outsourced to somebody else. Unless it's documented and unless you're tracking to make sure that it's actually been done, you're going to wake up one day and the house is on fire and you don't understand why because nobody's been monitoring certain things. So, again, the exercise of going through and documenting what should be the standard operating procedure, who's responsible for taking on those tasks, and are they actually being done the way you think they're being done, you will find a lot of pimples on your business because you'll discover that you're not actually doing the things you think you're supposed to be doing um, and, and that, that will hold you back from, from future growth. Makes a lot of sense. James, this has been amazing. I have certainly enjoyed this conversation. I have about a million ideas running through my mind right now, and uh, I love the knowledge that you've shared. You, you have such expertise in evaluating other businesses and determining whether they're primed to you know, be acquired or not and seeing future growth for them. And so I hope our listeners have been able to take away some golden nuggets here today. Um, before we wrap up with my final three questions, I like to ask every guest. Um, yep. I love to leave the audience with three actionable takeaways from each episode. Here are the three takeaways that I noted, James. Let me know if I'm missing something. Please. So number one, I would say the first step, if you have just kind of stumbled into a seven-figure business and you don't really have a team more than maybe a few VAs or things like that, you need to start building out your team and delegating responsibility goes back to exactly what James just talked about is developing those SOPs and then start getting really good at hiring and identifying good talent and start bringing people in. You've got to learn through experience how to lead. And that's something that I had to go through as a leader myself. Um, I made a lot of mistakes when hiring certain people and, from that, I, I've been able to better refine our hiring process, the way that we train and we onboard team members to where we can put somebody in. And like you mentioned, uh, you know, like with your kids, you're you have them doing the dishes. Right. And it might not be done correctly the first time, but you have a process to teach them. And, you know, that you can get them to the level of cleanliness that you need them to be at down the road. So that would be action item number one. Action item number two is you need to think about that brand equity starting today. Um, we talked about this. There's so many different levers you can pull when it comes to brand equity. Um, we most recently just talked about, you know, what is your repeat purchase rate? Like, what are you doing to tell your story, to bring customers back, to have them fall in love with your brand? What are you doing with that unbox, the, the product unboxing experience? Um, James, I think that was a big mindset shift for myself of maybe it is worth the extra cost to add a box onto your package so that you're able to tell that brand story more fully. And that allows you to market additional products or help them get introduced to your YouTube channel. That's not just, hey, subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's, hey, here are these videos to help you gain more benefit from this product. Right. Um. And so last but not least, I would say is if you don't already have this in place, uh, make sure you've created a three to five year business plan for your business. Three years is enough. Three years years, is enough. Five years is so far in the future. If you think through what you need to do in three years, by the way, a three year plan, if you're experiencing 10 or 20 percent growth, you haven't thought about it properly. Think the way Amazon thinks, which is. We're going after, you know, 20, 25% growth every quarter. What, what would it take in order to get there? I didn't say you're going to get there, but what would it take to get there? Mm. If, you can, if you can accomplish even half of that in the next three years, you're going to have an amazing business on your hands. That's a really, really good takeaway there. So three-year plan, how are you growing your business 
25% every quarter might be outlandish, but put all those ideas on a wall and start chipping away at them. Um, And then, like I said, when it comes time for preparing to exit, that's what gets a potential investor interested in buying your business is that they see, holy smokes, you've already laid out a lot of opportunity. I see the work you've been doing to prepare to, you know, take advantage of those opportunities. Let's reinvest the capital or the expertise that we have that we can bring to the table and help go to the moon. Does that sum things up, James, or am I missing anything? If that's all you do, you're better off than you were at the beginning of today's discussion. Awesome. I love that, James. All right. Let's go through these last three questions. What has been the most influential book that you've read and why? As an entrepreneur, what is is this partly about? Part of it is uh, having flexibility, but part of it is also making money that allows me to have the flexibility to do future things. There is a book that I read recently that is uh, really changed the way I think about the world. It's a book by a guy called Bill Perkins. The book's called Die With Zero. It's a book about how do you manage your money going forward so that you don't end up dying with a whole bunch of money. You, you should be making good money, but also spending money on yourself, creating you know what we call memory dividends. So how, how do you enjoy your money in a way that you create experiences for you and your family so that you're not just a 90-year-old man on a deathbed saying, I wish I'd done this, I wish I'd done that. Spend some of your money and enjoy life along the way. Yes, you have to be responsible, but there, there's no point being a successful entrepreneur to just keep saving money for some rainy day that you never get to experience because you're too old or weak to actually ever enjoy it. Uh, th- th- this, is a, this is a concept that you know, our, our society says, save your money, save your money, save your money. Yep, saving's good, but it's also important to remember you've got to spend money to enjoy life. And if you enjoy life along the way, whether that means you take your two weeks of holiday a year and you actually do something meaningful or you do a bunch of little things along the way to make your life simpler, don't be shy to spend money to make your life enjoyable along the way. That would be my, I, that would be my most interesting book. I love that. That sounds very interesting um, and very interesting thoughts to, I think, consider in that book. So thanks for sharing that. What's your favorite software, maybe a new tool that you've discovered that you think people should be uh, using? So I get the opportunity to see a lot of new tools as entrepreneurs come to me and say, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. What do you think? I've seen, I've seen some, uh, I saw this one tool called Visit, V-I-Z-I-T, which is a tool that allows you to optimize your images in a way that actually looks at customer conversion. Uh, And it's much more sophisticated than just a simple A-B test. It's actually looking at heat maps on the image and figuring out what content needs to be in the image in order to get certain levels of engagement. I was very, very impressed by that tool. I have no financial interest in saying what I've just said about that company. I was just very, very impressed by the tool. Um, I do work with one company called Logi.ai. They do influencer marketing. I've been very impressed by what they do, specifically because PPC costs on Amazon keep skyrocketing year after year. At some point, Companies need to think about how do you play the game differently? How do you drive traffic to your listings in a way that everybody else isn't necessarily thinking about? And I think that in the next two to three years, we're going to see a huge, huge increase in influencer marketing traffic where Amazon rewards brands for bringing traffic from outside Amazon to Amazon. And you want to do that in a very high conversion manner. And so if you can find the right influencer marketing folks who understand how to communicate the benefits of your product to consumers outside of Amazon and then drive them to Amazon, that that becomes a new way to play the game and often one that financially is much more rewarding than simply investing more and more of dollars into Amazon PPC. So those would be the two companies that I've seen that I, that I, I really like what they're doing, and I'm going to continue to monitor what they're doing. Logi.ai, how do you spell that? L-O-G-I-E. Dot AI. All right. And then visit is V-I-Z-I-T dot com. A real quick follow up question on that Logi dot AI, because I think yep. that's a fascinating concept of three years. You know, a lot of people, you know, the outside traffic becoming more and more important. Yep. Um, the debate is, do you send that to your own D2C website or do you keep doubling down on Amazon? And if you're trying to, you know, create a yep. brand, right, yep. that you want to exit. Is it better to be saying, hey, look at this, I'm driving traffic to my own Shopify store, for example, 
or do we keep feeding the Amazon beast? What's your perspective on that? Well, you can have your cake and eat it on, on this one, actually. Let's say you are driving it to your own DTC site. Your own DTC site can have two shopping carts. It can have buy here or buy on Amazon, and you click off to Amazon, and you can actually make your own DTC site an affiliate, and get affiliate revenue for driving it to Amazon. Again, make life easy for consumers to buy where they want to buy. So if you drive influencer marketing traffic to your own website or if you drive it to Amazon, you know, there are benefits either way. In most situations, private label brands on Amazon will never, ever get anywhere near the amount of traffic on their DTC site that they will get on Amazon. And what we're seeing is that external traffic to Amazon is much more rewarding than similar levels of traffic that's gained through PPC, which is essentially just regurgitating traffic that's already on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So to some degree, I I actually uh, prefer the model that says keep feeding the Amazon beast because there's a thousand times more traffic on Amazon. And if you can create yourself uh, just enough advantage on Amazon to get first page organic search, you're going to be in a much better position to win big, big dividends by being a big player on Amazon than being the biggest player in the world on your own website. Interesting. I love love that. If if you decide, no, I really do have to send it to my own website. Okay. But give customers the option by having those two shopping carts so that consumers can say, you know what? I've never bought on your website. I'm not really sure what this purchase experience is going to be like, but I know that if I buy it on Amazon, you know, it's prime. If I have a problem with returns, no problem. You know, you got my credit card information already. Give customers that second option. Either way, you're going to have high converting traffic going to either your website or to your Amazon product listings. Both of those are good for your brand long term. Awesome. Love your perspective there, James. Thanks. All right. Last question. Who is somebody that you admire or respect the most in the e-commerce space that other people should be paying attention to? (laughs) Well, um, I had the, the benefit many years ago when I was running the Prosper Show uh, to, to meet a gentleman called Rick Sasari. And Rick was the marketing, marketing genius behind uh, many of the products that, that we know from the 80s and 90s, like the George Foreman grill, the Clarisonic toothbrush. Uh, he was the guy that was figuring out how do you essentially use TV infomercials to help consumers understand what a product's all about. Well, the TV infomercial concept has simply reinvented itself and, and is now on Amazon with different types of live TV and extensive videos and all this other types of engagement with consumers. But it all comes back to the same basic concepts, which is understand your target audience, understand what problem you're trying to solve for them and get them excited emotionally about what your product can do for them. Rick Sasari, when he came to speak at Prosper, and this is now five years ago, uh, I remember people at the back of the room where I was standing coming up to me and saying, oh my gosh, I've never thought of it this way. What he's saying all makes so much sense that you need to engage with your target audience and help them understand what it is that they're going to be able to do with your product. I mean, let's be honest. This is really marketing 101 or 102 applied in an absolutely crystal clean way. Rick Rick Cesari has written some books. He runs an agency. He does amazing stuff for startup brands. Um, He doesn't know that I'm saying this about him, but, but, you know, what what he does needs to be applied to, to, to every private label brand today. One of the most irritating things that I have ever been told working with private label brands is that they all have some secret sauce. The reality is, if you know marketing 101, marketing 102, marketing 201, whatever, about the basics of what's your segment, how do you target them, how do you position your product to that target audience, that that is ultimately what this is all about. If you're building a brand, you've got to understand the basics of marketing. And you've got to understand not only how to help people understand what you're going to do to make their life easier, But if you can do it in a way that they get emotionally connected to you, now you have brand equity. And that's really what this is all about. So think about how do you apply the basics of marketing? How do you engage consumers at an emotional level? How do you show them how you solve problems? That's what Rick Sasari showed all the attendees at Prosper Show many years back. And I think about it regularly because, quite frankly, what we're trying to do today has already been done in the past in other types of channels and other types of settings but it's the same concepts being applied. And we as responsible private label brand owners, we need to be thinking about what are the basics that we need to put into every single product that we launch on Amazon. It's not about I need a pre-packaged and I need a bunch of PPC. That's not building a brand. That's just playing a game. And if you want to build a real brand and you want to be truly celebrated for, for building something meaningful, 
go and look at Marketing 101 stuff. Go read Rick Sassari's books, and you'll learn an awful lot about what you need to do to be an effective private label brand owner. I love it. James, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and insight with all of us today. If people want to follow you, uh, learn more about what you're doing, is there a place that you would like to direct people to get in yeah, touch I'm with on, you? I'm on LinkedIn, James Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N. You can find me there and certainly happy to chat with you there. Thanks, Josh, for having me today. I very much appreciate the opportunity. This has been a pleasure. Thanks again, James. Thank you for listening. Visit ecombreakthrough.com for more information. If you've enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can show your appreciation is by clicking the subscribe button and quickly leaving a review. See you again next time.